Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 12th, 2019, and this is episode... 2,469 of the Survival Podcast. Listen, guys, I want to start out today uh, with reminding you, first of all, what the show is going to be about. There's going to be an expert counsel show, and I've got kind of a special lineup that I'll talk about in just a minute. I've made some changes to things to bring in, um, uh, let's say, a guest member of the council, a guy that you guys know well who's been on the show before, uh, but it's really not a question. It's just something he put out today that I thought was so fantastic. I made it a segment today's show. I'll tell you about that in a second. The first thing I want to do is I want to apologize for how crappy yesterday's show was. Um, apparently, I left out two different segments, one of my own and one where the person actually asked the question during the editing. I don't know exactly how I screwed that up. Uh, maybe in a future call show, I'll figure out what I did and fix it and bring the things back and do it the right way. And, and I imagine the show this week has not been the best that it's ever been. This has been a stressful week for a variety of reasons that I don't need to share. Uh, it just has. And I have committed now almost uh, for over 11 years to trying to do my best for you guys. Like, there might be some noise or something. Maybe my audio is not perfect or whatever. I'm not an audio snob. But when it comes to my delivery and me giving you what I'm supposed to give you, you're supposed to get my best. And, and I don't feel like it happened this week, but... I feel good about today, and if uh, if you guys thought I was off at all this week, I apologize, and uh, we'll be coming back next week, and we'll try to do a really great week for you, but I am going to give you a great show today. The topics that I have, the special segment that I have, my segment, I think this show will be one of the best uh, shows we've ever done, certainly one of the best expert counsel shows. I've got incredible stuff for you today from Stephen Harris, from Jessica Mills, from Sean uh, Mills from Nicole Sauce and, yeah, Vin Armani. And we are going to talk about free markets in a way we never have before in my segment. It's going to tie right into Vin's segment. And I've got two songs for you today, song of the day at the end of the day, but at least a half of a song in a history segment today that's going to set the stage for a lot of what we're going to talk about today. So here's what we're talking about. Uh, we're going to talk about the song Blowing the Wind by Bob Dylan. That was released this week in history in 1962. Jessica Dixie Mills is going to talk to you guys about 10 essentials of survival and the things you need to have those 10 essentials so you can survive when hiking. Nicole Sauce is going to talk about turnkey rental properties. Uh, Stephen Harris has an incredible segment, and I have a resources page loaded up for you as well with stuff he's going to talk about in on how to build Wi-Fi extenders for your cell phones for when you're going into remote low-coverage areas with stuff you can just buy off the shelf. Sean Mills is going to talk about building a solar battery charging system. And then Vin Armani. I, I almost didn't do a segment myself today because this segment by Vin is about 17 minutes long, uh, but I am going to do a segment. So I realized the segment I had planned like so goes with this. Vin is going to talk about Bitcoin as a system of sovereignty in a way that you've never heard. I promise you, you've never heard anyone speak about cryptocurrency the way you're going to hear Vin speak about it today. And then I've got a question that seems totally unrelated, but it's not. It's about the concept of laissez-faire market or free market when it comes to something like a person running a farmer's market and setting controls on how many vendors, etc. And I'll, say, I'll explain why 
those things are not mutually exclusive and how this actually fits perfectly with the misunderstanding people have about a concept of a big scary word, anarchy. This is going to be a fantastic show. I want you guys to be revved up for it. And again, I apologize if I was not 100% on my game this week. And look at this. It is a comeback show. So let's start out with talking about this, this week in history. In 1962, Bob Dylan released a song called Blowing in the Wind. And I have to tell you that it is probably one of the greatest songs ever written, in my opinion. It was released actually on July 9th, so a few days ago from it, you know, being exactly on this day, but it was this week, um, in 1962. And the way Dylan introduced this song, the first time he ever played it, was This Here Ain't No Protest Song or anything like that, because I don't write no protest songs. What I want to do now is I want to play for you the first verse of the song in the chorus. I'm going to come back and tell you why it was such a damn good quintessential protest song because it did something that no song that was ever a protest song had really done up to this point. It shows a powerful way to open minds. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? Seas must the wind of sail before she sleeps in the sand. How many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blowing in. The brilliance of that song was it didn't say, hey, these things are wrong and therefore we should change them. You need to change this because I say that it's wrong. This was not a song that was really up front and direct when it came to pointing to the problem. It took a totally different approach. It asked questions that had obvious answers that at the time people did not want to face. But by asking the question, by asking the question, and then providing an answer of only that it's blowing in the wind, it caused people to have to actually answer the question for themselves, whether they wanted to or not. In other words, the answer to these questions was so obvious that you knew what the answers were. You knew what the answers were. You knew it was blowing in the wind. Everybody knew. Everybody knew that treating people differently because of the color of their skin was wrong, even though they didn't want to face it. Everybody knew the committing acts of aggression and war on people that were not trying to harm you was wrong, but nobody wanted to face it. In asking the question, in the subtle way that it was asked in this song, and leaving it to the person hearing it, 
to have to reach inside and answer those questions themselves and face them. Dylan, in not writing a protest song, in his own words anyway, in my opinion, wrote the perfect protest song. Good opening for the show. Now let's talk about something a little bit different. There was a recent National Geographic article talking about 10 essentials for hiking And uh, John Amore Park, who sends lots of stuff in, cool stuff, uh, said, hey, maybe this would be a good thing for Dixie to talk about. So I sent it over to Dixie, and here's what she had to say about it. Hey, y'all. Jessica Mills, a.k.a. Dixie here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land to address the 10 essentials of hiking today. And this is due to an article that was sent in by John and Moore Park. The article from the National Geographic was written in April of this year, so 2019, and it discusses why some hikers who get lost in the wilderness survive and why others do not. Now, from the article, I gathered that studies have shown that day hikers are at the most risk for being in need of search and rescue. Now, it also, in the article, includes commentary from a ranger in the Smoky Mountain National Park who is also involved in search and rescue. And that ranger said that about 90% of the 100 cases of search and rescue that they see annually are day hikers. And I thought about this a little bit. And, you know, anybody can get lost in the wilderness. And the article does talk about that, too. It doesn't matter that you have thousands of miles of experience. You can still get lost. And there have been through hikers like myself who have gotten lost and survived, some who have gotten lost and unfortunately not survived, but certainly this happens to day hikers too. And there could be more day hikers out enjoying the national parks than folks who are overnight backpacking, so that could play into it too. But I think what the article is really trying to point out is that day hikers are generally not prepared to spend a night in the wilderness because that's not what they're planning to do. Whereas overnight backpackers do have the things that they need to survive and usually be rather comfortable in the wilderness overnight or for several nights. So I think what the article is trying to point out is that people who are going out to enjoy just a walk in the woods, even for two miles or, you know, a couple hours or whatever it is, really should be prepared to spend a night in the wilderness, at least to survive, not necessarily carrying all the comforts that you would want to to really enjoy a backpacking trip, but just what you would need to be prepared to survive. Now, I know that most of this audience is people who are, in general, prepared for different situations that could happen, but I know a lot of y'all are probably prepared at your house, for instances of the power going out, or even, you know, in your car, you might have some sort of bug out bag or 72 hour bag. But when you get to a trailhead, don't let your preparedness in there. And that's kind of what I want to address today, which is the 10 essentials of backpacking or hiking or nature walking or whatever you want to call it. Just things that you should have on you if you're going to step foot out in nature because nobody plans on getting lost and having to spend an unwanted night out there. But just in case you do, these are the things that it's probably good to have to prepare for that. Number one is navigation. And hopefully this will prevent you from getting lost. But if you do get lost, hopefully it will also get you out of the situation. So this could be a map, a compass. Now, if you're going to have a compass, you should know how to use it for sure. Uh, a GPS, an app on your phone, you know, your smartphone. I personally use Guthook. That's a great app if you're on 
the Appalachian Trail, Pacific Crest Trail, Continental Divide Trail, Colorado Trail, Vermont Long Trail. A lot of the more well-known established trails have the Gut Hook app. And I've heard All Trails is also a good app. I'm sure there are others. But it's good to have two sources of navigation. So for myself, I use an app on my phone and then I have an inReach, which is a satellite device that lets you communicate with people whether you have service or not. So I suggest, you know, you might not have service where you're out hiking. So use an app that uses your GPS on your phone and then, you know, some other source. Like I said, I have the inReach. It allows me to communicate, but it also has um, because it's the Explorer Plus version, it has maps in there. So I can also use that if my phone gets crushed to see where I'm at on trail. And it has the topo maps and, and different things like that. So again, two sources is a good idea. Number two is a headlamp or other light source. I would not recommend just relying on the light on your phone, especially if that's also one of your navigation sources because your battery can die quickly. And I've noticed that my phone battery dies much more quickly when it's cold outside. Number three is sun protection. So clothing to cover your skin, sunscreen, sunglasses, even an umbrella I have found works wonderfully for protecting me from the sun in desertous or exposed areas. Number four, first aid. Now, I always go hiking and backpacking with Imodium because I had a bad experience one time where I didn't have that and I was kind of doo-dooing like a goose for several days. And, it, and I know that's really gross, but that's just the way it was. So I recommend always having Imodium. And if you get lost out there and have diarrhea, that's a quick way to dehydrate and put yourself in a really bad situation. But this could also include things like blister care, insect repellent, you know, things that you might need for small injuries uh, and common injuries that could happen on trail. And, you know, if you want to watch a video on some of that, I know a great YouTube channel where you could find that. But anyway, number five is a repair kit and tools. So I just carry a knife as my tool. I use a Genesis from Patrick over at MT Knives. But this should also include gear repair items like duct tape, uh, super glue. I carry while I'm backpacking a needle and floss because, you know, floss, I can floss my teeth. But also floss does really well for stitching up a repair if you need to on clothing or whatever. I just find it, it holds together a lot better than thread and I'm not worried about being fashionable anyway. So uh, I'm sure that this would also work better on, on gear like a pack, etc. Again, some of this might be more for backpacking, but if you're just out hiking, think of the things that you might need to repair in the field to make yourself more comfortable if you end up spending the night. Number six, a fire starter, obviously matches, lighter, etc. Number seven is some form of a shelter. This could be an emergency bivy. I've even seen people who might just take a garbage bag that they line their day pack with and, and put stuff in there that they don't want getting wet if it were to rain. So you could use a garbage bag. You could always fashion something up just to give yourself a little bit of shelter out of the rain or, you know, to use as a raincoat if it's raining. Um, but you just, even a small tarp, I mean, just something that if you had to, to have that be your shelter for the night, that it's going to help keep you dry and warm. Number eight is extra food and snacks. I've noticed when I'm getting cold, one of the things that will warm me up the quickest is getting some calories, obviously warm, dry clothes and maybe getting my sleeping bag, but, um, just having the extra calories and extra energy. If you're having to try to walk and, and find your way to, to where you're going and do more miles than you expected. Number nine, extra water. It's a good idea to carry more water than you think you might need, but I would also suggest having 
either Aquamira water treatment drops or like a Sawyer Mini. Those are so cheap, like 20 bucks. They're very lightweight, something to just throw in there in case you end up being in a bind and needing extra water. If you're in an emergency situation, you might just drink whatever you have. But if you get diarrhea, that's just a very, very fast way to get dehydrated and in a worse situation. So having some sort of water treatment would be a great idea. Number 10, extra clothes, rain gear, a beanie to keep your head warm, maybe a sweatshirt. Even if it's in the summertime, I mean, folks think that you can't get hypothermia unless it's freezing cold outside, but that's absolutely not true. It can be in the 60s. I mean, it, it can it can certainly happen, so be prepared for that. All right, so those are the 10 essentials. I think the biggest thing that this article was trying to do, and I'm sure Jack can include the link for it if y'all want to read it, I think that they just wanted to shift the mindset of people and let them know that although you may not plan to be in this situation, it can happen. And in fact, the people who need search and rescue the most are the folks who don't plan for the situation. And even if you were prepared, I'm sure it would still be a scary experience. I mean, I would be pretty frantic, be pretty, pretty worried, but at least having that mindset of, okay, I knew that this could potentially happen and I am I am at least somewhat prepared for the situation. I think that that just calms the mind down and allows you to prevent from making other horrible mistakes because you feel so vulnerable and freaked out because you're not prepared for the situation. But of course, with that, I'm preaching to the choir. Just don't take it lightly, folks. Get out there. Enjoy nature. You know, I'm not trying to scare anybody away from it or anything. Just be prepared for the situation that you might not expect that you'll find yourself in. And just a word on what I've got going on right now, because it's been a little while since I've been on the show. I'm actually out on the Pacific Crest Trail filling in fire closure areas right now from my through hike in 2017. So if you want to get over to the channel Homemade Wanderlust, you can watch my filling in of fire closure adventures. I'm doing that with my mom who is 60 now. She turned 60 this month and my little dog Fancy Mae who is a skittish little anxious dog, but I think that she has coming a long way being out here on the trail and just getting that good exercise and whatever mental therapy nature offers because it's real. I've seen it. I've felt it. All right. Well, that's all I have for y'all. Thank you, John, for the article and to Jack for forwarding it my way. And I will talk with y'all later. So I just want to add a few things there. Uh, number one, um, I think it is fantastic all the wonderful things a smartphone does, but I think the, uh, the, addition of GPS technology to our phones, allowing us to use things like Google Maps, etc., has led to a decline in the interest and use of a dedicated GPS device. And Dixie mentioned that her phone tends to die a lot faster in cold weather. That is a thing. The other thing that's a thing, though, is when you start running GPS uh, applications on your phone, it drains battery faster than just about anything else you can do with it. I would say at least as fast as recording video. It's it's that much of a drain. So always have backup power for your cell phone. We're going to actually talk about that a little bit today later on. But I think that if you are going on the trail at all, you should have a dedicated GPS and multiple sets of batteries to go with it. Um, even something like a cheap Garmin E-Trex uh, for 80 bucks would be better than not having uh, an additional means of doing that. Next, she kind of really quick went over things like Imodium. I just want to point out that in disasters that happen throughout the world, the number one thing that kills people is diarrhea. Uh, $2 worth of Imodium was what they needed to save lives per child in Haiti. 
more than just about anything else. Because given the choice of drinking tainted water or going with no water and being completely dehydrated, people will drink the tainted water every time. So that plus having a way to uh, to purify water, obviously. And next up, uh, a knife was mentioned, but I believe that everybody should have a saw and a chopping tool. When, I don't care if you're taking a two-mile round-trip little hike in the little nature center down the road. Um, lost is lost. And we had a, a gentleman from a SEER team on here, Search and Rescue, who said that, that it took them about 16 hours one time to get somebody out of a place that was only two miles from a road because it was not accessible uh, with something like a UTV or something like that. So just what was necessary, even though they weren't that far in it, it wasn't that hard to find them to get people in and actually be able to get this person out because they were injured in the way they had to get them out. So if that can happen with that, you can end up lost any time. And if you end up long-term, there's a lot of things you can do with something like a, a small hatchet or a machete and uh, some sort of a saw, whether it's a, a wire saw or just a saw blade on a, uh, on a Swiss Army-style knife or... What I prefer in your pack is just a small folding saw. Your symbol opens up. It's almost like a little bitty bow saw kind of when, when it's opened up, even though it's not got a bow to it. Uh, that is so valuable. Last, I wanted to add in on the repair, uh, you know, repairing fabric, repairing tarps and stuff, and, and Dixie mentioned you, you can tape and stuff like that. Ripstop tape. Um, which is pretty much a lot like parachute repair tape uh, that, that's hard to come by, by the way, uh, actual military-grade uh, parachute repair tape. And that's, that's even better if you can find it. Uh, but ripstop tape, and I have a link to where you can f see what I'm talking about on, on Amazon. Uh, everybody should have that in, in your vehicle kit, in your bug-out bag, and definitely everything from a long-distance pack to a day pack. And I think it makes perfect sense. And I know Dixie was trying to not to sound too elitist as a thru-hiker long-distance hiker, and, and try to mitigate uh, the concept that it's day hikers that most often end up in trouble. But it makes perfect sense to me because somebody that's going to be on the trail for a week or two or three or a month or more is prepared to be overnight. They generally have everything we just talked about, and they know how to use it. So if they get lost, they tend not to panic. And Dixie said, you know, she'd be scared and all. But the reality is if you get lost hiking – And you've followed the plan of making sure people know where you're going, et cetera, like this. Somebody's going to probably come looking for you. And generally the way people get lost is they get, they get disoriented, they're not sure where they are, and it starts to get dark, and then they panic, and they're sure it's this way or that way, and then they think they're going straight, and then they're making a bend. Uh, I watched a guy very lost for about 15 minutes when I was bow hunting one time, and he was less than 50 feet from a road. And, and finally I realized he wasn't going to find the road, and I, my hunting was over, and I yelled to him and told him where to go. But he was charging through this tangled swamp back and forth, and you could see, even at the distance I was, from sweat pouring out of his head, and it was quite cool out. Uh, I was hoping he'd find the damn road, but he was probably not going to, and when I thought he was going to get more lost, I yelled to him. So that it happens. If you're prepared to spend the night somewhere, and you get toward the darkness, and you're not sure where you are, Even if you kind of sort of do, if you have a good GPS and, and whatnot, you just set up, spend the night there, and, and then you just use your GPS to get out in the morning. It, it's so much easier if you're prepared. So there you go. Next, I have a one from uh, Nicole Sauce on the concept of turnkey rental properties. And Nicole knows a little bit about rental properties. Big on side hustles, and one of hers is real estate. Nicole, take it away. 
Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here from Living Free in Tennessee with a question from Keith. This was actually originally sent to Jack and John, but they punted it to me because I have rental properties. So here's the question from Keith. Regarding purchasing turnkey properties from a real estate property management company, is it a good idea or the new scam? Background. After listening to your interview with Nick, I went to his website and came across a company called Roofstock. This company brokers deals for turnkey cash flow properties and manages them for you. In looking for reviews on Roofstock, I found that most of them were biased towards Roofstock. Is this a reputable company are there others to compare them to? I don't have enough cash to buy property outright, but I could put 20 to 30% down. Also, is it a good idea to buy rental properties in a state where you do not live? Okay. I am not a financial advisor. I'm not a real estate advisor. I just manage rentals. And I haven't played any of those things on my podcast or on TV or in front of people in a playhouse, okay? But Keith, be really careful. That's all I can say is be really, really, really careful. I think about services like this personally. This is just me personally. Like I would with working with a company to manage an oil well, a crypto mining rig, or any other risky investment. And I know real estate sounds stable and a lot of people have made money on it. And it can be done in a in a way to make money, right? But it is also risky depending on what you're doing. So you can make money, but you would be well served to learn as much as possible before diving in. This isn't like using a money manager who you can do a lot of research on to look over your portfolio, right? This is something where you got to learn what's going on. Real catastrophic costs can arise in running a rental business. And ultimately, you as the owner, you're on the hook for them. So here's some things to think about. First, do the groundwork. Can you get actual references for the company? A way you might think about doing this is ask them for references, but then do some digital research. If they're managing rentals, they're advertising them for rent. If they're advertising them for rent, people have to apply through their system. Find some of those properties. Pull the public record that tells you who owns it, right? Contact that person, find out how they're doing. So look for references that the company won't give you, right? That's what you want to do. And then can you put the time in it will take to travel to an out-of-state market regarding your out-of-state question to get to know it? I have a friend who just bought a rental in Ohio for, I think, around $25,000. And then they're fixing it up. They're going to be able to rent it for... I think 800 bucks a month. And that's not bad, right? Like you could buy that with cash. You can put the time in to remodel it and then you're getting $800 a month. Not a bad deal. Got there and he's doing the, the updates himself. Got there, got to know all the neighbors, started looking for a property management company, right? So somebody to oversee it for him because he is going to be out of town and found out that had they spent a little bit more time in the market, they would have gotten their place for five to $10,000 less. So they bought, you know, and okay, so that's a five to $10,000 mistake. Like think of that on the scale of a $200,000 property. It starts adding up. But what he learned out of that is next time he buys something like that, he's going to spend more time on the ground getting to know that market before he does it. And that's on you. You don't want to trust somebody else telling you the market is this way, right? You want to learn the market yourself. 
Have you ever managed rentals before? If not, you need to learn what that's all about. Find somebody local, like willing to let you intern, if nothing else, because there is so much to learn about managing rentals. And I feel like working with a property rental management company, if you don't know what you're doing, it's easy to get into a bad contract. So it's like, for me, I've managed properties for about 15 years. I don't feel as uncomfortable talking to a a property management company because I know what questions to ask because I know what I get calls about all the time, right? And I know when what happens when you hire the wrong repair person and all of those things. So definitely, if you don't know about managing rentals, find a way to get hands-on experience. And then how well do you know the real estate world in general? It's going to be kind of an important thing. I've been thinking about getting my real estate license at this point because I might as well. I've had to learn so much. And finally, what are the local rental laws like? What's the political environment there as relates to rentals? And what's the long-term outlook? Because I got my rentals out of Portland, Oregon in uh, 2010. Okay? Thank God I did that because they have put so many regulations in place in Portland, Oregon, that as a landlord you're screwed. Like basically the minute you rent to somebody, they have all the power there. And it's because slowly over time, they started with rent controls. They've started putting, now they have statewide rent controls, right? They've started putting in other other regulations intended to help the tenant that are ultimately going to backfire because landlords are pulling out because now they've made it non-profitable to be a landlord. So I think what you're going to see in Oregon over time unless they change something, is that there's going to be a real housing crunch on the rental market because it's just too much of a pain in the neck to rent to anybody there anymore. So learn about that. And that means learning the, the like the city regulations, the county regulations, and the state regulations, and then doing the research on the political environment. So you see, that's a lot of groundwork to do before you just go turnkey with somebody. But I think you'll find out if you do that, if this is really the directions you want to go, you'll be in a much better space. Okay, second, are you committed and is this right for you? And that's probably the most important question before you do all that groundwork or maybe doing that groundwork helps you figure it out. Sometimes when things happen, you do have to go there if it's out of state. Even with a property management company, you need to go So are you willing to do it? Can you do it? Is your financial position such that if a furnace and a roof go out in the same year that you can pay to repair them? Because ultimately repairs go back to you even through a property management company. And then what could you do with the money you're putting into this if you weren't putting it there? And is that a better long-term fit for you? And what are you going to do if the rental market crashes or the real estate market crashes? And then finally, if you do decide to move forward, assess the deal really carefully. Consider getting a real estate lawyer to help you with that if if you're fairly new to this. And I, I things I'd wonder is what are they charging every month? Is it every month? Is it every time they get a renter? And what do you get in exchange for that money? What is the service call minimum every time that there is a repair? And how do you ensure quality of work? I have a friend who paid more than $500 to get a kitchen 
sink faucet replaced because of minimums and the guy forgot parts and every time he left and came back he charged another minimum fee of $150 for a service call right that was just for the labor now anybody who's put in a kitchen faucet knows that a you can plan what it's going to take so you shouldn't have to go to the store 19 times right and b it should not cost $550 in labor so really be careful about that and know that if you're working with a property management company you're going to need to oversee that every month right based on what they're bringing in and read that contract really, really careful to find other ways you can get in trouble. Real estate can be a really big growth source. That's why people are so interested in it, but it can also bankrupt you very quickly and it isn't for everyone. I think a decision like this really boils down to your personal priority, your financial situation and your drive to do it. And also if you're carrying debt right now, Don't even go there. That's just my two cents. Don't go there. So jumping into something like this without a ton of learning is something I would personally not do. And I've managed my own rental properties for 15 years. I grew up helping my dad manage his. And I'm still like, I'm pretty sure it would take me two months of running numbers to decide if I was going to do something like that. That's even with my background. I'd want to run scenarios like rental market crashing, housing market crashing, income goes away, like anything catastrophic that could happen, rent controls being put in place, like any of those things that might happen. And I really think you need to look at the risk and decide if it's worth it. I hope this gives you a place to start as you look into this option, Keith. And thanks for the question, even though it was for Jack. Keep them coming. Oh, speaking of personal priorities, guess what? I wrote a cookbook. It's called Cook With What You Have, and it chronicles my approach in the kitchen, which I do kind of use recipes as sort of a sketch, but, eh, you know, I usually don't have everything in them. So uh, I have some approaches on how to deal with that because that's what happens when you're eating off your garden and and locally. It's available in hard copy right now on Amazon.com. And through the weekend, I have it at an introductory rate of $10. After that, it goes up to 15 You can find it there or just go to livingfreeintennessee.com and click on the link in the sidebar. I'll take you straight there. Ebooks coming out in a week or two. And if you do buy it, guys, do me a big favor. Write a review on Amazon. That helps. Every little bit helps. Okay, guys, with that, go out. Make it a great week. I think one of the big things when a property is specifically being marketed as a turnkey rental property, in other words, well, I already own this property, and I already have a tenant in it, and it's already profitable, and if you buy it for me, it will be for you too. Um, if it was that profitable, why are they selling it? And there might be a reason. The reason might be that they want to, to pull equity from the property to go to a larger project, so it may not be that bad, but... Generally speaking, I've seen the people that do the best with rental properties really learn what they're doing first, and they get good at finding properties that are in the rough that have potential that can be made really nice for not much money. They're easy fixes, and they get the property for under market value, which is always good in the first place. They do the things that are necessary and then install a tenant. I know that's pretty much what Nicole does. I've seen some photographs of it happening, and you might too if you followed her on social media. Just saying. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead. And this one's for Stephen Harris, and this is on extending Wi-Fi signal when you're out and about and out in the sticks. Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question, and I got a great one here for you. I've been doing this for years. I am going to blow your mind because you want data. You always want data. You want to be in data. You want to have data during a disaster when you're camping, traveling, or whatever, and have cell signal. And I got the simple and expensive best options here for you. 
I have question for Steve. Are there any non-commercial, I don't know, com- commercial, non-commercial, less than $500 cell signal boosters suitable for a limited remote technology work, or do I need to go get satellite internet? Uh, I'm looking to purchase something like a Wilson WeBoost Drive 4G-X RV 50-inch for use while camping on public lands, i.e. boondocking in the middle of nowhere, with marginal but not the absence of cell service. I camp where there is no cell service, and I have plenty of cell and data. I work for a modern software company. My needs are reliable voice, text, email, and chat, and some file upload. It doesn't have to be super fast. Uh, video is not needed. Uh, camping family, six weeks a year. He really wants to be out, but doesn't want to be out of touch. And he certainly doesn't want to go and get a wild blue or a HughesNet satellite dish. Listen, let me tell you, aiming and pointing the HughesNet or wild blue dish is a royal pain in the rear end. You really wouldn't be doing that when you're boondocking or camping. It's not simple at all. So here's the solution. You all got it backwards, completely backwards, okay? The first tenant of amateur radio is if you can't make the repeater, you can't make the connection, you don't get a radio with more power, you get a better antenna. Amateur radio, it's all about the antenna, everything about it. And like I said, you're all doing it backwards. You all want to put up an antenna, and you want to amplify the signal, repeat it inside your trailer so you got cell signal. And what's the first thing you're going to do with your cell signal? You're going to turn your cell phone into a hotspot, and you are going to then get onto the Internet. No. No, your phone has a puny little itty-bitty, you know, worthless antenna on it. What you need is a real antenna, and to do this, you need to do it backwards. You don't want to get cell signal. You want to get data. Now, the way I have been doing this for years and nearly a decade, and anyways, uh, what you do is you go and get a Verizon jetpack. Now, this is a little box, smaller than a pack of cigarettes, and uh, all it does is it connects to the Verizon tower, and it becomes a hotspot, okay? It's not a phone. It's not. It's just a data device. It gives you Wi-Fi hotspot. You can all connect to it with your phones and your tablets and your laptops and your computers, and you can have uh, Internet over um, Verizon. Now, it's like, oh, that's expensive, Steve. Damn, you know, data caps, everything. No, no, right now, July 2019, Verizon pre Paid jetpack plan, okay? Prepaid unlimited plan. Sorry, it's called prepaid unlimited plan. It's for the jetpack and it costs $65 a month, unlimited 4G, no data caps, no throttling, no nothing, unlimited 4G and also unlimited 3G if you're not in a 4G area, but most everything is 4G area that I found. So you got plenty of data for 65 bucks a month, okay? And I'm I, at home. I got 35, 50 megabits a second down. I was just out in the middle of nowhere, no cell phone signal, no nothing, and I put my antennas up at 25 feet, and I got uh, five megs down. Now that's the key about the jetpack. The jetpack that you probably want, depending upon what year this is, is the Netgear AC791L. Jack has links to it and an explainer page. Now, what's neat about this is it's got antenna ports on it. Yes, sir, it does. It has MIMO 
M-I-M-O, cellular ports on it, which means it needs two antennas. There's one's primary, one's secondary. So what you do is you get some mag-mount cellular antennas with the right connector. Again, Jack has the links to Amazon and better ones. And you plug them into the both ports, and then you put the mag-mounts on top of your vehicle, and you drive down the road. You attach your cell phone. In my case, I got an AT&T cell phone with AT&T data, but I connect it by Wi-Fi through the Verizon uh, jetpack, and then I use Wi-Fi calling. So basically, I'm, I'm not relying upon the little antenna inside my phone that my hand and case is covering. I got 8 dB or 7 dB mag mount antennas on top of my truck that is pulling in all this Verizon signal that I'm then making a phone call over, and I can make phone calls where I can't even think of making phone calls with my AT&T cell phone. Verizon absolutely has the best coverage in the nation. Don't argue with me or Bob Wells or anyone else. Just freaking get it, okay? I have AT&T because I've had it in the past. Plus, I have two is one, one is none. I can have my AT&T cell phone. I can make it a hot spot, and I can connect to it to get AT&T data if I have to. But if AT&T is down or there's a problem, I can go to my Verizon jetpack, and I can talk over to Verizon jetpack with cellular over Wi-Fi with AT&T. AT&T, Samsung uh, Galaxy phone connected to the 4, uh, 4G jetpack, and I'm talking on Verizon with my device. So two is one, one is none. One is down, I got the other. So I got simple antennas for you, eight-buck antennas on Amazon, and I got the really good $40 ones. You need two of them, and what I do is I put these up on a painting pole that goes up to 25 feet on the back of my trailer. Uh, I'll give Jack some pictures. But anyways, you put them up there, and I get signal. I get really great signal on my bug-out trailer, and I can have data. Now, I'm going one better, and I was doing this for a friend, and I'm doing it for myself. Uh, there's a company named uh, MOFI, and they are MOFINetwork.com, MOFINetwork.com. And you want the MOFI 4500 4G. X, sorry, 4GXELTE-SIM4 or the SIM4 combo. Now this is a professional, it's 300 bucks, and this is uh, the Netgear, oh sorry, the Netgear is 100 bucks, refurbished on Amazon, Jack has links, and or you can find them all over eBay, don't worry about used or refurbished, just uh, get one anywhere from 33 to 100 bucks for them. This one is 300 bucks plus, but it's got two awesome cellular antennas and two awesome Wi-Fi antennas, and it's got a really awesome cellular antenna connector on it. It's a, you know, I connect to it with a male SMA, and I'm going to an N-style connector to a 50-ohm cable, low loss, up to a Yagi antenna. Yagi is a directional beam antenna, okay? That's, like, really serious. I'm going up to two of those on a channel master, 25-foot extendable mast, and I can dial in exactly where my tower is because I can see the signal strength on my uh, on the router via my cell phone so I can zero in like nobody's business. And that is like real serious boondockers or I have a cabin in the woods, cellular uh signal and data type of thing that you want. Uh, the MoFi device works with all North American carriers. Doesn't matter, CDMA or GSM, all of them and European. Uh, it definitely is the higher quality way to go. 
However, if you want to go the budget route, that will work for 90% of you. I guarantee it. Okay, you can follow my instructions that I just told you about and the sheet that Jack has, and you can do it really on a budget for 100 bucks or less plus $65 a month. If you want to go ultra serious, Yagi antennas, those are 50 bucks each from Wilson, and you know, uh, a telescoping mount and some good cable and a really awesome device inside your trailer or your bug out cabin. You can do that. In fact, Channel Master even has a 40 foot extendable antenna, but you have to guy wire it down, which is no big deal. Watch their videos on YouTube. So I'm sorry to rush this, but I had to cram a whole bunch of information into a short period of time. But this is the way you do it. You get the data with a better antenna, and then you talk over the data. It's just like you're making a cell phone call. No one can tell the difference. Okay? It's not Skype. It's not. You know, it, it's your cell phone. It's called cell phone over Wi-Fi, and it works fabulous. And it's just one little thing inside your phone. This is Steve Harris bringing you the best stuff you have never heard before. You can get all my free stuff at Stephen1234.com and my membership site, Harris1234.com. And if you're trying to follow Steve and all this craziness, I have a page set up with a link to it with all of the stuff that Steve talked about where you can get it. Some of it's on Amazon, some of it's on eBay, some of it's like at Home Depot, uh, but everything and, and some additional notes so you can kind of put that all together if you want to is available. And there is a link in the resources section of today's show notes. Good stuff from Steve, awesome stuff from Steve. Next up we have a question on charging batteries using solar, and we've sent that one over to expert council member Sean Mills. Sean, let's talk about this. Hey everybody, this is Sean Mills with Hack My Solar, and I have an expert panel question. Uh, this question is for Sean Mills of Hack My Solar, or maybe you, Jack, or possibly Derek Bonpietro, whoever you think is best. How can I build a reliable solar-powered lighting for indoor use? Details. I would like to build a solar-powered system for my ambient lighting as one more way to decrease my dependence on grid power. Here's what I'm thinking. I need a small battery bank, a small inverter to switch from DC to AC, power running from the inverter into a toggle switch, then from the switch to an outlet that I can plug the lamp into. To charge the batteries, I would, get, I would disconnect the batteries and take them outside to a charging station, probably a wooden custom-built box, put the batteries in the box, hook them up, and charge them with solar power using panels mounted on top of the box, always having a few extra batteries ready to go. I have no background in electricity or solar power. I'm sure my design ideas are flawed in some major way that I'm unaware of at the moment. Here are my questions. What have I missed in my design idea? What does the charging station need in order to function properly? What size would the battery bank need to be to power an energy-efficient bulb for a couple hours? Why isn't there already a kit to purchase that is plug-in ready for small household fixtures? If there is one, is it expert council approved? I'm sure there are better questions to ask, but I did my best for a beginning homesteader and TSP newbie. Thanks for everything, Aaron in Kentucky. Aaron, hey, thanks for the question. Um, the the as far as I know, there is no kit that's ready for this. And as we work through some of the math here, I think you'll understand why. In your design idea, you really haven't missed any of the major um, components. 
Um, and, and, and I'll take a minute to, uh, to answer your questions. So, uh, the first thing we need to understand is that the amount of light put out by a bulb is known and measured as lumens. Uh, let's take a mid-level incandescent bulb at 60 watts. That bulb is going to produce about 800 lumens. It's going to use 60 watts uh, when it's on. So for every hour of use, you're going to need 60 watt hours of electricity. At 120 volts, which is what your house is wired for, uh, you're going to need one half amp hour for this light. Now, a compact fluorescent is a 13-watt bulb, and it's going to give you the same 800 lumens, but it's only going to use 13 versus 60 for the incandescent. And an 800-watt, uh, or rather lumen, LED bulb is only going to run about 9.5 watts, or less than one-sixth of the energy of that incandescent. Additionally, you could do with a 7-watt DC 12-volt LED bulb, uh, which is going to generate about 700 lumens. So it's less in terms of lumens, but you get more lumens per watt uh, with that 12-volt DC system. Uh, so based on that information, it's obvious for a renewable system that we want to go with the LED bulb. So now the question is, do we want to run DC or AC? If you're only going to run lighting in one or maybe two adjacent rooms with this system, I would go with DC. It's super easy to use and no inverter required. Uh, just run your DC wiring to your fixtures, plug in your bulbs, and you're good to go. However, if I wanted to standardize my bulb sizes so I didn't have to buy both DC and AC bulbs and keep them separate, um, and I wanted to be able to use the AC system for all the other appropriately sized AC devices in my house, uh, I would add in a small inverter and run everything off of AC. So let's talk about the math. If you wanted to have 10 total 800 lumen bulbs spread throughout the house and you went with the LED option at 9.5 watts, that gives you a 95 watt per hour system. So let's assume 5% losses in efficiency through the inverting and moving of electricity and we end up with 100 watts. So per hour, we're going to use 100 watts. We're going to design a 12-volt battery system, so for every hour of usage, we need 8.3 amp hours in the battery. Uh, so essentially all we're doing there is we're converting watt hours over to amp hours by dividing it by the voltage of the system. Um, and since the, system, the battery system is 12 volts, the fact that we're inverting in the middle doesn't matter. Um, now a size 31 deep cycle battery at Sam's Club is going to provide you with 105 amp hours. Uh, that's at the 20-hour rating. We're not going to get real deep into that, but that's the rating we want to use. Now, let's say we want to stay above 50% depth of discharge for the system. Uh, this means we don't want to take out more than 52.5 amp hours out from the battery. That means we can run a little over six hours for each one of those 10 fixtures uh, until the battery needs to be recharged. Or if we were doing one fixture with that same 60-watt bulb, we'd get 60 hours. Uh, a 52, 52 and a half amp hours at 12 volt is equivalent to 630 watts. So when we design our charging station, we need to be putting the equivalent of 630 watts into the battery from our solar array. Now, I always use an 80% efficiency rating for charging because even if you have perfect sun, little things like tilt, azimuth, panel temperature, dust, etc. can all impact the recharging of the battery. So dividing the 630 watts by 0.8 gives us 787.5 watts. Now, just about everywhere in Kentucky is going to average 4.5 sun hours per day. So if we use the average, we need about 175 watts of solar to recharge the battery for one in one day. Uh, most 20 amp charge controllers are going to handle this job for you. You were talking about one panel, really. 
Uh, just make, make sure you get an MPPT or maximum PowerPoint tracking controller. Uh, I would suggest the 800 watt Cobra inverter that you can find on Jack's T-SPAS page that both Stephen Harris and I recommend. Uh, now, all together with battery cables, extension cords, power strips, and two batteries to rotate, you're running between four and five hundred dollars for this system. Uh, personally, I would look for a wider range of usage than just lighting to make this system worth the money for me. You know, maybe I'm running my laptop off of this, uh, charging my phones, using it for lighting, you know, a few other little things here and there. Um, if I was just looking for a lighting solution, Honestly, I would go with a AA-powered battery lantern. Uh, I'd use in-loop rechargeable batteries and a battery charger that I could recharge in my vehicle during my commutes to and from work. Uh, that gives me a, a much more economical lighting option than, um, than the solar system. That's not saying you can't do the solar. Uh, just understand going in, you're putting a pretty big investment for just using lighting. So either diversify your usage or maybe if it's just lighting, go with a different option. Um, so always, as always, if you have questions, get them to Jack and I'll answer them. I do have a few questions in my backlog. So if you're waiting on getting a question answered, now that I'm back from vacation, Jack's back from vacation, and we're past Rebellion Day, uh, you should hear some more answers. Uh, as a reminder, I am hosting a solar energy workshop at my house near Knoxville, Tennessee, where we're going to cover all the evaluation and design criteria for either an on- or off-grid system, as well as do some hands-on work for an actual grid-tied solar array. Uh, the dates are August 16th through 18th. Food and beverages will be provided. There's ample room for camping on-site as well as local hotels. And everyone is welcome to stay through the 19th of August to travel out if they like. Total cost for the weekend is $300. That's a fraction of what you're going to save by utilizing the information that's going to be provided during this workshop. Everyone who attends is going to receive the Excel worksheets that I use for my designs that I charge other people for. Uh, email me at hackmysolar at gmail.com if you are interested in attending. Keep the questions coming and talk to you guys next time. All right, good stuff from Sean. And I, I did uh, reserve some 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 uh, material I have from expert council members, but I could really use questions right now for members of the expert council. If you want to see everybody that's on the council, there's links to all their websites in today's show notes and every Friday show. But you can also look at the about page at the survivalpodcast.com, and there's a tab there that says Meet the Expert Council. You can see all of our great council members, and I need questions for them, so get them into me with TSPC Expert in the subject line. You know where to send that, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Next up, I have a segment that I'm, I'm looking at like a guest spot on the Expert Council, though I would sure take Vin as, a, as an Expert Council member if he wanted to do it, definitely. Vin Armani has become one of my truly great friends that I've met online and uh, just a person I have tremendous respect for, uh, and it, it, I think it's pretty great that the respect seems to be very, very mutual. Um, today, he put out a video talking about Bitcoin is a system of sovereignty. And I'm going to tell you that if you are a particularly religious person, you might really like this, or there might be some parts of it that you kind of don't like or whatever, but it is so spot on with the concept of you as a sovereign being versus you being accountable to a sovereign over you. And I thought it was so fantastic. I, I Vin put it out on, on Twitter uh, I retweeted it. I put it out on MeWe, um, and I 
just thought, hey, I wonder if it would be okay if I played it on the show today. So I, I hit him up on Twitter and said, hey, can I play this? He said, absolutely. So this is Vin Armani talking about Bitcoin in a way I don't think you have ever heard before. And I think it will fit very well with, with a relatively short segment I'm going to do here at the end on laissez-faire capitalism. Back in November of 2018, as the price of Bitcoin was crashing relative to the U.S. dollar, I wrote a tweet. And I said, if you want the price to go back up, Get back to asking the question, what is Bitcoin? If you want the price to keep dropping, keep acting like you know the answer. Now, what I meant by that was, in order for the price of Bitcoin to go up relative to the dollar, people have to believe that Bitcoin is valuable relative to the dollar. And since value is subjective, that's going to mean that a whole lot of people are going to have to understand and realize what makes Bitcoin valuable to them. But you can't even begin to understand what makes Bitcoin valuable to you until you really understand what is Bitcoin. And of course, you can't understand that unless you ask the question. And so I've asked the question and I constantly ask the question. I'm asking it every day. I'm asking, what is Bitcoin? Trying to understand it better. And one of the answers that keeps coming back to me is something that I wanted to share with you now. What keeps coming back to me is Bitcoin is a tool for individual financial sovereignty. It's a phrase that we do hear in the space, but I don't think that we hear it enough. And one of the reasons why is I think most people don't really have a good idea of what that means and how central the idea of personal sovereignty is to our culture. It goes back to its very roots. And so let's go back to the roots and then we'll move forward and understand how Bitcoin fits in. The idea of individual sovereignty is absolutely core in the West. And if we wanted to trace the ideas that underlie Bitcoin, the very kernel of the ideas back, I think the earliest place that we could trace it back in our culture is one of the most famous stories from the New Testament, from the Gospels. And this is actually from the book of Mark. It's about one of the manifestations of what Jesus called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's an idea about sovereignty. This is from the King James Version. In this story, they are trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to catch him up in something so that he can be imprisoned by the Roman authorities. And this is about taxes and should they pay taxes. It's a famous story best known as Render Unto Caesar. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar, or not? Shall we give, or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt you me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. It's an interesting story where here you have this central figure of all of Western culture, and there's no no doubting that Christianity is uh, at the core in terms of the ideology of Western culture. 
here's the central figure who, like many Bitcoiners, is saying that fiat leaves much to be desired, saying that that money which is issued by the state is not of value to him, and that there's another opportunity and another form of currency, another medium of exchange that can be used, that is God's, he says. The things that are God's. And it's interesting because this actually echoes, and myself being American and and coming now as I'm recording this only a week away from Independence Day, so much of this idea continues through, and we start to see what the vein is that leads us to Bitcoin. So in 1384... John Wycliffe wrote in a prologue to his translation of the Bible. The Bible is for the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That'll sound familiar to students of American history. And then during World War II, Pope Pius XII, quoting this passage from the New Testament said, Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. One would like to add, Give unto man things which are man's. Give man his freedom and personality, his rights and religion. So here is the Bishop of Rome, the person who's supposed to be Christ's representative on earth. That's the idea of the Pope echoing the First Amendment of the Constitution, freedom of expression, freedom of religion. Of course, coming from out of the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And of course, consent and consensus have the same Latin root word, consentire, which means to allow or really literally to feel together. So they're talking about the idea that governments are there to protect these things which are gods, these God-given rights. Uh, these things which need to not be rendered up to Caesar, that instead it's Caesar's job to protect the sovereignty of the individual. Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address went back to Wycliffe's statement, but instead of uh, Wycliffe saying that the Bible is for the government of the people, Lincoln admonishes the crowd towards the end in the famous statement that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth. So that is to say that there's this idea that goes through Western culture and is expressed at its height in the American experience that those things which are God's, those things which are to be rendered unto God and not to the government is the sovereignty of the individual are the rights that an individual has to be free to pursue his happiness to have life to be able to express himself not be censored 
to be able to practice his religion. Of course, religion, the root word, the Latin root word, which forms religion, which really means to bind together. So to be able to have human relationships with one another and that ability to have that relationship outside of the state with another person, to be able to render unto God that which is God's is expressed all these millennia and centuries later in Bitcoin. It's what makes it so disruptive. It's right there in the title of the white paper, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer cash system. Cash, people in the space argue about what this word cash means. What's a good way to define cash? I think that it's fine if we say that it means settlement finality. The idea that once an exchange is done, it's final. Peer to peer, me to you, person to person, bound together. That in our pursuing of happiness, that we have the freedom to exchange with one another, to render unto God that which is God's, or to be able to have a money that is God's money, so to speak, not in a religious way, but in the way of this philosophical idea of being of the people, by the people, for the people, outside of the idea of the state. And this is said by Satoshi Nakamoto right in the introduction to the white paper, where he says, what is needed is an electronic payment system based on cryptographic proof instead of trust, allowing any two willing parties to transact directly with each other without the need for a trusted third party. Who are those trusted third parties? Maybe we could just call them third parties because the trust is, eh. He's obviously talking about financial institutions, banks, and the government. He's making a statement about rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, rendering unto each other that which is ours. Rendering unto God that which is God's, our own sovereignty. So I keep saying sovereignty. What does sovereign mean? So it comes from the Latin root of super, which is over. So you've got sover and then reign. It's that reign. So it really means reign over. To reign over the final authority, the final judge. In the case of Jesus, he was talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He's referred to as the king of kings. The idea of the final authority, the final judgment, who will sit in judgment, who will be the final arbiter. In the fiat system, the final arbiter are the banks who can just decide to take your money. And really the government that is in the unholy alliance with the banks, the state, that that's the final judge. In Bitcoin, the final judge is cryptographic proof. The final judge are the laws of nature and mathematics that if you believe in God, were put there by God. And even if you don't believe in God, are aspects of nature. And so previously, you had the idea of the sovereign and the sovereign was the state. The sovereign was Caesar. If you were to go and you were to hunt on the king's lands, you could be killed for that. There were ideas that to commit certain crimes were crimes against the state. 
in the drug war, you had the idea that to possess and consume certain plants, to put something into your own body, was a crime against the sovereign, against the state. That's why if you were caught and brought to trial, it would be the state of X versus you. You had committed a crime against the sovereign because presumably the sovereign must be the ruler of your body. The same goes for the idea of the income tax. This is something that I write about in my book, Self-Ownership. If your employer doesn't just pay you because they don't, in most of the West, most modern countries, if there's an income tax, your employer pays you and then also pays your sovereign, the government. And if for some reason enough has not been paid of your income, what are you told? You are told that you owe, you owe the government for your labor. Just the same way as if you and I both own a house jointly and I sell the house and I don't give you your proper percentage, the percent of equity that you have, I owe you that, the profit or the fruits of that exchange. So this is the sovereign saying, this is the person who is over you saying, you do not have full sovereignty of your labor, which means that you do not have full sovereignty of your mind, of your body. So you must render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's because you are Caesar's. And this is what Bitcoin allows to be disrupted. This is why Bitcoin is valuable. This is the big reason. It's because it fulfills a promise. It fulfills a promise of our ever-evolving understanding of individual rights and of freedom. It fulfills a promise that goes back millennia. The idea that you would render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and that's fine so long as you're participating in that system, but it offers you a system that is of the people, by the people, and for the people, that you're protected by cryptographic proof, that you are protected by nature, by the rules put there, by whoever created the rules or whatever created the rules. Whatever that is, that is who you render unto. And you are going to have to render unto that creature or force or whatever it is. If you want to get your Bitcoins, you're certainly going to have to solve and cryptographically prove. But so long as you can do that, so long as you can render unto God that which is God's, that mathematical proof, then you can participate in the system. Peer-to-peer cash is about sovereignty, personal, individual sovereignty. You are next to God. And everyone is at the top of their own personal hierarchy. There's only math above you, and none of us can escape that. None of us can escape the rules of nature. And it's a fantastic opportunity because we're able to take back bodily autonomy. It's valuable because human beings are able to take back from themselves to be kings of their own world. And of course your finances means so much of that because they're the fruits of your labor and your labor comes from your body and your mind. Those things which are yours, 
and its sovereignty in the exchange of the fruits of that labor between individuals all over the world at instantaneous speed. That's why it's valuable. And it becomes less and less and less valuable the more of Caesar that is brought into it because it destroys the promise. It's rendering unto Caesar something which is not Caesar's. And every time, whether it was in the words of Jesus, whether it was in the words of the founding fathers, at every step of the way, this idea has been at the root of increasing the personal freedom of human beings. This idea has been at the root of taking people out of bondage, decreasing their suffering. This is at the root of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is a real tool. And this is why it's valuable. And this is why it's more valuable than that which is Caesar's. And it always has been more valuable than that which is Caesar's. And to understand that... And to understand why it is more valuable is exactly how we will see over time that it will be expressed, no doubt, in price. But most importantly, it will be expressed in a measure of human freedom. So, um, yeah, you can see why I thought about just not doing a segment today. Who the hell wants to follow that? That was <clears throat> beyond amazing as far as I'm concerned, and it? It really sums up what a lot of us have been trying to say about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as a whole for so long now. It is not about buying something so that it will go up in value and holding on to it so one day you can get a Lamborghini and fly to the moon like Elon Musk. That's, that's not, that is not what Bitcoin is about. It's about independence from the banks, independence from the government, and removing third parties from transactions between individuals. That's what it's about. Even when you use cash, you're rendering on a Caesar that which is Caesar's. It's, it's got dead president's pictures on it. But when you're using something like Bitcoin, you're independent from those systems. Well done, Vin. Now, the segment I'm going to talk about today, I realized, in a way, really dovetails nicely here. This comes from Matthew, and Matthew is an enterprising guy. Um, he has established a farmer's market, and he's got some really good stuff going on. So here's, here's what he has to say. He says, does laissez-faire or free market approach apply to all markets? Details. I manage a small farmer's market in northern Wisconsin. We have about eight full-time produce, meat, and baked good vendors, and typically about 250 to 350 customers come through the market each week. We serve a community of only 3,500 people. Right now, it's a good balance between vendors and customers. It's been my goal in the past three years to grow this market to the extent possible, and I feel I've done that adequately with time changes, radio ads, social media. I'm getting requests from new vendors that would like to join our market. My personal philosophy is to let everyone in and let the market determine what works, but my manager side doesn't see that ending well. Our current vendors still have things left to sell at the end of the market. They won't be too happy if there's more vendors to compete with for a limited customer base. The worst case scenario is if I let the new vendors in and nobody makes enough money to make it worth their time and effort, I lose most or all of our vendors and our little farmer's markets no more. 
I should add that we are not in a community with very much agriculture, so vendors themselves are in limited supply. So do I keep trying to manage the market by striking balance between vendors and customers? Do I let my dirty farmer's hands out of the way and let the market decide what happens? Thanks, Matt. Let me start out with a question, the, the first question and a, and a simple answer to it. Does the free market approach apply to all markets? Yes, it does. That doesn't mean that the answer to this question is let, let any and all into your market. That's not what that means. The concept of a free market or laissez-faire market is really a great way to understand the concept of anarchism in that people think of anarchism as a bunch of Yahoo idiots running around the street setting shit on fire. That is not anarchism. That is vandalism, and that is the damaging of other people's rightfully gained property, therefore violating the non-aggression principle, and therefore it can't be anarchism. You see? That's how that works. The fundamental component to anarchism is that which one has rightfully acquired is theirs and not to be touched and not to be taken by force, that only it may be exchanged through consent. Additionally, the concept of anarchy is that your body... It is yours to do with as you please, and nobody else is without consent. So if anybody attempts to harm someone, that is also not an anarchy. It's pretty much the only rule, and it's a very important rule. And once you understand said rule, it, it gets really easy from there to understand how anarchy works. But the other side of it is, that is the rule itself, the overriding guidance that works for voluntarism, anarchism, agorism, whatever you want to call it. But we always say it is without rulers, not without rules. So who creates the rules? People that voluntarily associate in what other, other, whatever framework they associate and with whatever they rightfully have gained make that decision. So in an anarcho society, if you and 25 other people have pooled your resources You get yourself a couple dozen acres, and you say, here is where we live, and here are the rules where we live, and whatever we go somewhere else, we have to abide by whatever rules those people that control that area have, but here this is what we do, and if you don't like it, don't come here, then that is an anarchy. A laissez-faire economy is an agorist economy. And what that means is your market, you have done the work, you have extended the labor, you have done what it what was required to build up your market. A free market means that if I decide I want to come to Matthew's little piece of Wisconsin and set up my own market and do it my own way, that no one can prevent me from doing that and competing with you. You have to think of your market like a store. Let's say you had a grocery store. And let's say that another grocery store, a big chain, had a generic brand that had their name on it. Let's say Kroger's brand or Albertson's brand. I think they actually call it Select or something like that. But they, they, they said, hey, we want you to put our generic brand, our name brand product of canned foods in your mom and pop grocery store. You tell them to go screw. You have your vendors. You, you're not going to build their brand on the back of your small store. Unless they made it interesting and gave you enough margin to make it, maybe you're better off selling their select brand than you are selling Heinz. But that's negotiable. And you're not going to put everybody who wants shelf space into your store. Why? Because you can only sell so much to your market. And every time you add a vendor, you reduce 
the market share of the other vendors. So you're going to try to find the best fits in your market for your customers that make you the most money, that make your vendors the most happy, and make your customers the most satisfied. So I don't think that you should just go and wide open this thing to anybody and everybody that wants to come. I think what you should do is you should look at your existing lineup of vendors, and when someone else is showing up and saying, I would like to be a vendor here, you should say, what do you got? What is your value proposition? What, what is your commitment? And when you find somebody that fills a need, or at least even a potential need, that's not already being met, then you bring that person in. But this is the most important thing. The other vendors you have have not done the work to build your store, your market. They are a supplier. You should never see a supplier is cemented into your store. They all, all of them, have the potential to be told, we're moving you out. Now, I don't know what kind of contract or agreement you have, but if you have not put that in there, then I think you're making a mistake. Now, I'm not saying that it should even happen. I'm saying the potential for it to happen should be there. Because you need to be looking at your vendors and saying, are they doing a really good job for the, the space that they're occupying? And just like if you had a brand in a grocery store, and let's say you had a, let's say a big grocery store, so you have everything, you know, like a little mini Walmart grocery store, and you have beans, and you have four brands of beans on your shelf. And three of those brands are accounting for 95% of your sales, and one of those brands is only accounting for 5% of your sales. Don't you think that removing that brand that's only getting you 5% of your sales, unless it is a huge markup, some kind of premium, where you're making more money on that 5% than you are on half of the other 95. Well, that's different. But if you're if you're making about the same amount of profit across the board, you're better off freeing that shelf space up and putting either a different brand of beans in there, putting more of the beans you sell in there already in there, or shifting the whole shelf and adding something completely new. So I would look at your farmer's market and say, what do people want in, that they would buy if they were here? that they can't get here now. Because the more... See, when I go to a farmer's market, what makes me excited is not 400 people all selling different tomatoes. It's one or two people selling really great tomatoes, but I also want maybe pastured chicken or corn or whatever. And what I want to be able to do is I don't want to go all the way to the farmer's market And I can only get one or two things I need, and I still got to go to the grocery store's produce section. I want as much as I can possibly get from this place. So I would also look at, are there things that, you know, and farmer's markets are one of the most weirdly regulated things on planet Earth. So in some places, you know, bringing in somebody to sharpening knives is totally acceptable. In some places, it doesn't make any sense, but it's the way it is. So you might look at what are other things that would fit well there. And I think each vendor, you should say to them, What is your value proposition? And unless it's something unique that we don't already have, then right now we're not taking new vendors. That's my guess from this, you know, I'm literally 1,500 miles away. But that's my guess based on the way you've described it. But just understand, free market doesn't mean everybody and their brother gets to come into the thing you've built. 
It means that if somebody else wants to build a similar thing, there's not something in the way. So if you created some kind of regional guild that, that said, hey, if Tony tries to open up a market in anybody's little area, whether it's mine or yours or whatever, we're going to break Tony's legs and tell Tony we don't want him here, like a mafia extortion or a government control that says there can only be one in the county or something like that. See, that's violating a free market. You controlling your market is not a violation of the free market. It is an exercise of the free market. And he who runs the best market will achieve the most success with the market in that given area. So that really does fit the concept of seeing yourself as sovereign versus paying tribute to a sovereign, doesn't it? That's why I decided to go ahead and include it, even though it can't even come close to comparing to what Vin had for us today, because that was fantastic. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I hope that today's show makes up a little bit for some of the hiccups we had this week. Um, I'm just going to say it was it was not the best week, but it's good enough. And it's going to be great, because tomorrow I'm hanging out with a bunch of you guys that are coming by the place. And uh, I've had some questions about that today from people, and I said, no, I'm sorry, we're... We've capped that one. We will do something like this again next time. Maybe I'll give two weeks' notice where we have people just come, local people come hang out at my place, hang out at the pool, that type of thing. Anyway, with that, I am ready to wrap things up. Please remember, you can support this show by doing your online shopping where? At tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, where if you see it there and I've reviewed it, I own it, I spent my money on it, and I'd do it again or I wouldn't ask you to. Uh, we did have a lot of talk about Wi-Fi and mobile devices and things like that today. Well, my item of the day for you today is the Anchor 24-watt dual USB car charger. It's about 10 bucks. It is the best 12-volt plug-in dual USB charger I have ever found, and it's worth more than 10 bucks. but that's what Anchor asked for, it, so that's all they get, and you get one back. Anchor is one of the best electronics companies I have ever found. If you ever have a problem with an Anchor pro a product, they are going to make it right. I've only ever had one product from Anchor ever that when I got it, it didn't work quite right. It wasn't completely broken. It just didn't do what it was. And when I contacted customer service about it, they said, just keep it. We'll send you another one. This is the type of company that I like to recommend and work with. This charger is a fast charger. It is It is really fast. The fast charging port charges at 4.8 amps. Um, it pairs really well with that Anchor Astro E7 backup battery bank, which is in uh, this as well. I'm telling you, your cell phone and your other electronic devices are your link to the world. This is the rules that Stephen and Harris and I agree on 100%. We have three rules when it comes to cell phones. Rule number one. You do not let your cell phone go dead. In fact, you keep it fully charged all the time. When you are home, you plug it in. When you're in the car, you plug it in, etc. Rule two, have multiple ways to charge your phone, especially in your vehicle. Rule three, you don't let your cell phone go dead. In fact, you keep it fully charged all the time. When you are home, you plug it in. When you are in the car, you plug it in, etc. Did you notice that rule one and rule three are the same? There's a reason. This device helps you do that. And again, it's, it's, it's kind of cousin that I always link the two articles together. The E7 Astro backup battery is fantastic. So check it out today. But remember, you shop through tspaz.com no matter what you buy. You help support the survival podcast and the work that we do. As we finish up this week, I have a hell of a Friday song for you. But remember what week we're in? We're in the week of Make Gen Xers Feel Old! 
<laughs> we're playing songs this week uh, that turned 40 this year. That means they were released in the year 1979. You realize that? Like, if you're as old as me and somebody's like, well, when were you born? You remember, like, they used to make fun of people. I don't want an 1800, you know, like that, right? <laughs> 1906. But it's 2019. You're like, I was born in 1972. I'm old. Yeah, I'm old, and you're old, and this song is now 40, and it's one of the all-time great songs. I also consider, I know there's other spoken word songs, but I consider this song, and I don't generally talk affectionately about this type of music, I actually consider this song the first rap song. Yeah, there's other spoken word songs that are earlier than this, but if you actually listen to the way this song's done, this is rap before rap was a thing done by a big old fat country boy with a beard and a fiddle. Yeah, and it's good, dude. It doesn't even suck. I remember this song because when I was a little kid, I remember when this song came out, I was in love with it so much that I ended up getting a little 45 record of it, and I played it till the damn record wouldn't play no more. That's how much I like this song. And the fact that my, my birth name is John uh, didn't really hurt that a great deal as well. Anyway, here it is. 40 years ago, this song was released. It's still as awesome as it ever was, in my opinion. And Charlie Daniels is still making music and still damn good at it. Here we go, finishing off your Friday. The devil went down to Georgia. The devil went down to Georgia. He was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was willing to make a deal. When he came across this young man sewing on a fiddle and playing it hot, and the devil jumped up on a hickory stump and said, Boy, let me tell you what. I guess you didn't know it, but I'm a fiddle player too. And if you'd care to take a dare, I'll make a bet with you. Now you play pretty good fiddle, boy, but give the devil his due. I bet a fiddle of gold against your soul, because I think I'm better than you. The boy said, my name's Johnny, and it might be a sin. But I'll take your bet, you're going to regret, because I'm the best as ever been. Johnny, rising up your bow and play your fiddle hard. Cause hell's broke loose in Georgia and the devil deals the cards. And if you win, you get this shiny fiddle made of gold. But if you lose, the devil gets your soul. The devil opened up his case and he said, I'll start this show. And fire flew from his fingertips as he rosined up his bow. And he pulled the bow across the strings and it made an evil hiss. And then a band of demons joined in and it sounded something like this. Johnny said, well, you're pretty good, old son, but sit down in that chair right there and let me show you how it's done. Fire on the mountain, run, boys, run. The devil's in the house of the rising sun. Chicken in the bread pan, picking out dough. Ready to dog back, no child knows.
the devil bowed his head because he knew that he'd been beat. And he laid that golden fiddle on the ground at Johnny's feet. Johnny said, devil, just come on back if you ever want to try again. I done told you once, you son of a bitch, I'm the best it's ever been. He played fire on the mountain, run, boy, run. Devil's in the house of the rising sun. But you can eat the bread, better picking out those. 